Welcome to the Visegrad Insight Podcast from Central Europe on Central Europe. This edition is part of our special series dedicated to the New Europe 100 network. The network run by Respublika and Visegrad Insight is part of a joint effort started together with Google, Financial Times and the Visegrad Fund some six years ago and that brings together and promotes the success stories and people from the region, um, the, the people of success of the digital age who, because of their global impact, groundbreaking expertise, unique skills, social outreach, um, are, are making this region have a, a different name, the new Europe. We thank the International Visegrad Fund for supporting us and we're inviting you to listen to a series of 10 podcasts on our platform devoted to the New Europe 100 Forum we have been organizing throughout October and November with speakers from the New Europe 100 network. Can education secure a job or a career? A discussion with Pavlo Sheremeta, former Minister of Economy of Ukraine, Luisa Slavkova, director of the SOFIA platform, and Boton Felady, director of the European Leadership Programme. My name is Wojciech Przybylski. I'm editor-in-chief of Visegrad Insight. Having your diverse experiences, uh, but all coming from Central Eastern Europe, um, let's have a first take on the question, what do you think, is there even a relationship these days uh, in the digital age between getting education and getting a job, what sort of relationship that is. Do we get education in order to get a job or th these are two decoupled concepts? Pavlo, what do you teach to your students? I used to teach uh, strategy and leadership. Um, I rarely do this uh, nowadays because I'm more into advice and consulting. Let me uh, briefly um, uh, relate to your question. There was a question, uh, does uh, education secure jobs? Uh, well, first of all, I have a problem with the word secure. Because I think that especially, you know, during the pandemic, there is absolutely nothing secured. And um, I'm just I'm reading the book written by Farid Zakaria, uh, 10 Lessons of Post-Pandemic World. And he, he emphasizes that if you have an economy which is open, dynamic uh, and secure out of these three words, you can have only two. And if you have open and dynamic, it cannot be secure. So there is no security. That's number one. Number two. Uh, what is job? You know, uh, if, if job is for nine to five, this, th these jobs are shrinking. Um, they're all changing. So I guess we need to talk about work or projects or gigs or engagements or, you know, something like this. Uh, and if we kind of broaden that definition, uh, then, you know, same thing about, you know, what is education? I mean, how do we define education? Many managers would say the best education they had was reflection after their mistakes which means that doing stuff is much more important for your future engagements, for your future projects, and reflecting on those experiences, correcting mistakes, correcting your behavior, finding the best way, the best course of action. That is probably a kind of the best way to proceed. And let me conclude, uh, this is a nice column that I just read preparing for this uh, panel discussion by Tom Friedman in the New York Times. He says that we will be changing, our kids most probably will be changing engagement and works and projects many times in their lives. Uh, you know, so it's basically instead of the old system of learning, learn and work, 
Uh, now he says the system will be work, learn, work, learn, work, learn, work, learn. So that's where we are moving in, uh, in my opinion. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Uh, it's a fantastic beginning and there is nothing better than challenging the, the, the notions. I think we were not particularly focused on uh, promoting uh, security and jobs and, and uh, a future, but we relate to something of a concept of a stereotype that floats around in the public discussion, a preconception that education is designed in order to secure a job. But is that uh, what education is all for? Luisa, where, where, where are the purposes of education these days? And what are the challenges uh, that you face uh, organizing the discussions and trying to influence the educational processing across Central Eastern Europe? Thank you. I feel tempted to follow up on something that Pablo said, but also that was part of your first um, question. So to ponder a little bit more on the concept of security. Back in the days in communist Bulgaria, there was a quote that was saying, go study so you don't have to work. So I think this notion is still very much sticking to people's mentality. And also the fact that you do have an education, so you do have a secure job still sticks with a lot of people, regardless of age, I would say. So still many young people, especially those that are coming from their smaller towns and the rural areas, grow up with the notion of, you know, I have to go get an education. It's of course a big question, what is a good education in a country like Bulgaria these days? But there is still the notion that, you know, education is going to give you a comfortable, secure, um, secure life. Um, then uh, I totally agree with, um, you know, Pablo's um, assessment. And I also have to think of, um, you remember Peter Pomerantsev's, um, the expert on fake news who's living in Britain, who wrote a book a while ago, um, that was called something like, nothing is true and everything is possible. <laughs> so I think we can relate um, that quote also to, you know, um, education in the job market. It's such a flexible thing um, that I think the main competences that one should be working on when it comes to young people is really, you know, how to build resilience, how to manage the uncertainties, how to stay sort of flexible, um, and be have the imagination to be able to reimagine yourself and to deal with transitions. Boton, uh, a question to you. Uh, thinking of the digital age education, especially that is, it has so many more meanings today under COVID-19. What is your idea of a, of a good education? What would you tell your children? How, how will you relate their education path to the, to the jobs that you imagine they will pursue, you, they will try to get uh, later on. You see, uh, challenging the definitions, there is one better thing to challenge the moderator. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I think that um, education as a word and job as a word indeed um, have very different meanings and we use them in a far too restrained understanding. I have three kids uh, and, and they are in a smaller age. Uh, but I realized that I started to use the expression civilization very early with them. Um, so I try to cover a range of issues that you see, my son, this is something that is part of our civilization. Um, and if you look at the origins of education, actually, the word means more a sort of bringing up, to raise someone up. Um, so for me, when I think about education, and that is the current uh, axioma that we use for the leadership program here in Brussels, 
um, is much more focused about the development of that person and to find a vocation for that person. Um, and that vocation might entail one, 10 or 100 jobs. I don't know yet. Uh, he doesn't know yet. No one knows it. Um, but certainly there is a living, a possibility of making a living behind it. Um, I was teaching in institutions where Eastern and Western European students were meeting. Um, this is also the situation now in our program. Uh, it's extremely interesting to see the biases that they bring from the different, let's use my word, uh, civilizational backgrounds. Um, what is missing very often, um, and that would be my three points to drop on the table, um, is the personal relationship in teaching, and that comes from the kindergarten up to the university level. So what is the personal relationship of the educator and the educated? Is there one? Uh, is it math or not? Um, do we take into account that education is not about the textbooks, the material or the format, whether it's digital or not, uh, but it is about a whole school approach, that the school is a community and we just tend to ignore and disregard this fact and we are far under-resourcing the community aspect of our education institutions. And thirdly, it is about finding vocation. We can push the kids or the students into jobs that they never want. <laughs> But this is no meaning for the society. So we have to help them to find their path. Um, and this is, this is a very classical uh, Jesuit principle of education um, that we need to find a vocation. We need to offer the self-development uh, possibilities, which are, again, uh, at least as far as I know, for example, the Hungarian system um, or some Central European uh, school approach, uh, it's really not there. So I would put these three, uh, personal relationship, war school approach, and, and, and vocation finding uh, as the main challenges of the education systems. Yeah, beautiful ideas. Thanks, Bottom. But how, how in practice um, does it look like? Do you see all of these beautiful concepts work, work? Students go to universities to get education that will get them jobs that will pay off, um, you know, the debts or, or the, the, will help the families to, to prosper. Companies, even if they come in and bring in new ideas, to, to the education system. This is another, I think it's a growing phenomena across the world. They're also not focusing so much on these elements that Luisa and Bottom touched upon. What is the reality of education the, today? I, I think I can ask you this question as you have quite a outlook of the uh, at least university uh, element of education? Well, education is in a huge uh, state of transformation all around the world. Uh, in Ukraine, it's probably slightly behind uh, but uh, I was privileged to work with the with kind of advanced institutions uh, in my country. My work was uh, in um, uh, in adult education and uh, executive education mostly. Um, and um, uh, the, the 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 main principle there is to have the education as practical as possible. Um, uh, case-based instead of lecture-based. So, you know, taking the specific um, executive managerial situations being discussed uh, in, the, uh, in the classroom, uh, that was before pandemic, of course, uh, now it's online, so it's fine. But then we realized, and our participants realized that, um, especially talking of corporate education, that we don't need to have uh, Western or Eastern case studies because we are the case study. Uh, so we split into eight teams 
and started to work on projects. We we started, well, these were supposed to be strategic projects, strategic initiatives. So we had to design, first of all, uh, then to elaborate, uh, turn it, the idea, uh, then to turn it into the project plan, develop the budget, pitch an idea, you know, get the money from the management uh, into the, uh, you know, into the, you know, to cover the budget, implement the, the idea, implement the project, because, uh, learning happens mostly through doing, but not enough. Doing and reflecting on doing. So that was basically the principle that we were using in the adult uh, uh, executive education. Again, learning mostly from our own experience. Sometimes we would get, you know, bits of, uh, you know, Microsofts and, uh, and Apples and uh, Samsungs you know, into the into the story, just kind of to broaden the picture. But 80%, 85%, that was our case studies, uh, the work that participants are doing, uh, hoping that when they come back to their workplaces uh, next day, they will do the work uh, more productively and more effectively. Yes. Do you employ also, Luisa or Button, in, in your programs as you design them or uh, advise on them, uh, those case study and practical, uh, you know, learning by doing methods? Is it ubiquitous uh, knowledge uh, or, or, you know, experience in education in, in the region? Luisa. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, the so-called project-based learning um, is a both a skill and an approach that is only now uh, sort of uh, making a way in the educational system, at least in Bulgaria. So um, as of this year, for the first time, uh, we're introducing the subject civic education and project-based learning as part of the whole curriculum. Um, and I can tell you from, um, from the teacher trainings that we have done over the past couple of years that this is not a competence that teachers have. Um, and this is something that they are supposed to teach, um, teach the kids um, in, you know, both how to do it, how to fail, how to deal with the failings um, and so on and so forth. So in that respect, I absolutely think that it's, uh, it's a crucial skill. One of the ways for us to try to even convince young people that it's, um, it's very useful to study civics is because they gain some project management skills uh, by working on, on, on projects. So absolutely, yeah. Gotan, uh, you're dealing with uh, young uh, talents, uh, already employees at the European Commission or European Parliament level. What, what do people at the beginning of their careers, uh, new European leaders, look for in, in terms of uh, the, the sort of education that will raise their quality, the, their uh, capabilities, uh, their potential in, in, the, in their career path? Thank you, Wojciech, for the question. And uh, you touch on a very important point. And um, I would also use the word uh, reflection that uh, Pablo put forward. Uh, the whole idea of the program is indeed that only trainees can qualify. So there is no uh, only formation part, uh, but we take only those people who have a full job. And the idea is that they then remain in a community so that they can share each evening and reflect informally and sometimes with uh, facilitation about their job experience. So practically, they do eight hours uh, case study uh, live in the parliament at the best places of the union or of the EU ecosystem. Um, and then uh, these leadership fellows can share and practice uh, and discuss with their mentors who are professional mentors or with their coaches, which is a more personal quality, uh, or with the program uh, fellows uh, between themselves, what their experience is. So this is in, in this part when we train the 25, 
lives to 30-year-old people, this is actually the heart of, of, of this issue. But even when I was working with university students, simulation games were one of the most important tools. Um, so we did not talk about negotiation tactics in front of the whiteboard, uh, but we created a simulation game where they could practice the multi-annual financial framework, which for a student first sounds like a crazy idea. They don't care about numbers. But then when after the two-day simulation, they understood uh, what it was all about. And they said, oh, is it really like that in Brussels? Uh, and then they got a taste of what it is um, to, to really negotiate, to hide away in the corridors, because we give the chance to that. So it's not only around the table, but they also have in a sort uh, offline period. Uh, but we also were happy to recreate these kind of projects um, in primary and high schools, when we were asking in the Parents' Academy initiative um, that parents, teachers, and um, school children work together on a project for the school. Um, so that was also mostly to create their community, but the project itself was helping them to enter into a dialogue that in many cases they have never done before. Um, so I see it very practically feasible at all level uh, very necessary and to be honest without that um, it would be a, a very theoretical nice discussion but to no other you're listening to the visegrad inside podcast special new europe 100 edition follow us for more podcasts from this series where we talk to those who share courage for innovation and speak on big ideas check our new europe 100 publication series at visegradinside.eu and follow our social media. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter and endorse us on your favorite podcast platform. During today's Europe 100 forum, at the very beginning, we had uh, MEP Eva Maidel. She was mentioning that the public budgets that go into education is then missing out with the, uh, the, the process of migration. And we're talking now about COVID-19 situation, doctors. Uh, educated in Central Eastern Europe, the first thing they were doing, they were going somewhere else. How do you see this, uh, this, this nature of investment in education? What are the dilemmas around the, the question of, of education and job market um, in Central Eastern Europe? Are we investing in something that we're losing ultimately? What do you think? When I was in the government in 2014, one of the laws was the law on higher education, uh, the point of which was uh, university autonomy. Uh, and um, uh, responding to your question, so how to keep the brains uh, in the region uh, and how uh, to kind of develop those brains in the best way, um, I see university autonomy, but the point of this autonomy is to ensure this um, uh, creative destruction. Joseph Schumpeter wrote the book, uh, the, the Theory of Economic Development, 110 years ago. And his main point is creative destruction. Of course, it's debatable how much destruction you know, should we allow and you know, what's a good balance. But the point is that the competition between the universities the dynamics between the universities, the autonomous and uh, autonomous uh, entities, uh, the dynamics between the uh, public and private university, you know, their ability and understanding that they should not rely only on the government uh, subsidies, government funding. They have to go out and uh, and uh, raise funds like many, almost all universities in the world are doing to the to the different extent. Uh, of course, North American universities are doing that more than European universities, but they all do it. And again, the competition that should spur innovation, 
uh, innovation, which is, uh, if I may say in this case, customer related. Uh, again, understanding that the student is both our customer and the end product. So that was, I think it was a right response from uh, our government at that time um, to the challenge that you posed. Uh, Luisa, you also started to, to give your comments. Please, most welcome. Thank you. I think this is absolutely the elephant in the room for a couple of years now. Um, what is the dark side of um, internal EU migration? Um, and I think we're now seeing its consequences day in, day out, both on, on how there is a shortage in countries like Germany, but also um, where, where there is just naturally not so many people uh, working in the in the um, medical sector, but then also um, the, the, the brain drain that's happening in our countries. I remember back in the days, the UK had a, the so-called ethical concerns regulations, where they would say, we're not taking medical staff from certain countries, just not to, you know, contribute to um, to the demise of it in, in that respective country. But I think when it comes to the European Union, the question then is this, uh, the free movement, how it starts becoming a curse, not a blessing, especially when it comes to the healthcare um, system. I think putting it black and white and saying national countries um, invest in, in the education then people go to other countries is not the right way to look at it. At the same time, I think this is one topic that we from Central Eastern Europe should be putting on the table first when, um, you know, discussing political issues with the leaders from the Western part of, of Europe, because very often when we talk about migration, the conversation is always about the, the Bulgarian or the Romanian Roma who live off uh, social payments in Germany, for example. The, the, the other side of that is really the fact that the good doctors and the good nurses of our countries are also um, over there. This is a conversation um, that I think we should be looking from a variety of aspects rather than putting it black and black and white because it does touch on this key issue of freedom of movement and it's both uh, positives and negatives. Thank you. Well, uh, Button, uh, I have a question to you as uh, you know, you know exactly how Hungarian situation is developing. Mr. Orban, uh, educated in an autonomous higher education institution, seems not to believe that the autonomy of, of university is, is the future to secure the well-being of, of his country in terms of employment, job market. You know, uh, he's basically designing centralized uh, system with, with top-down approach here. How, how do you see, where, where is at least the discussion, the philosophy behind these actions, if you try to be empathetic towards uh, this approach. And then feel free to express your um, point of view. That's a good uh, good way to step in this debate. Um, Orban actually was visiting two institutions in parallel. One was a communist university, so it was autonomous or not, uh, that's uh, debatable. And then there was a so-called college, which was more of an Anglo-Saxon way of a college, which was uh, very autonomous to the regime measures. Um, so actually, he had experience in both. Um, the fact that what is happening now with the centralization of the financement of the universities in Hungary, uh, which is also accompanied by uh, moving over the uh, university assets into public funds, uh, that's the most recent development in the last year that actually the largest universities are moving into a public foundation uh, with a board that is involving corporate people. Um, so that's one side of the reality. The other side is, I guess, um, and that's also my point, that we really have to rethink the public financement of the universities. Personally, I am much more cautious about the introduction of the 
private sector into even the higher education uh, than Pablo suggested, uh, because that is very quickly boiling down to social justice issues. Um, but um, when we talk about the public spending, definitely uh, there is a need to rethink what kind of strings you can attach on it, what kinds of conditions you can expect. Is it a number of publications? Is it a number of students? Um, what kind of quality measurement can you make? And to be honest, um, the quality um, assurance schemes of higher education is just poor. Um, so we need to rethink that, and the government should do that. And in a way, Mr. Orban started to think uh, in his own way and according to his own uh, experience, uh, how well uh, shape it. He is coming from the politics, and the politics is a binary system, we all know. Um, so necessarily, that must dominate his thinking would not dispute that. Um, but uh, when we are talking about public money being spent, I would definitely also attach uh, much more detailed expectations to the universities um, to keep the public sources running, exactly to assure the social mobility uh, that uh, private uh, corporations, uh, especially natural sciences side, uh, would quickly um, uh, transform and would leave us with much less space uh, of maneuver. Um, and this is the same for migration. Migration is, is, is two-way, so it's inbound and outbound. Uh, I'm a migrant now in Belgium, um, and, and I am received, my kids are received by the Belgian system. Uh, and the Belgian system has to cope with kids who don't speak one word of French. Um, and they did, and they were prepared, and they are happy to integrate these people. Uh, as much as we should be in Central Europe happy to integrate people perhaps coming from the outside, at the same time then we let people go out. And there are many ways how you let people out of the country and how you keep them in your network or how you finance their studies. You have so many th interesting things to share uh, around the topic of education, you know, planning education from different angles, from different points of view. But uh, but uh, another thing I wanted to ask, if we differentiate, because we cannot say like uh, philosophy or history, we will all, all of a sudden be fields of education that will be sponsored by private corporates. We will definitely see much more of uh, interest on on this, uh, let's say, job market, also from the job market perspective, from the companies um, which are in the tech sector, some uh, some uh, high tech, perhaps some creative industries. I wanted to uh, ask you to play a little bit of of this game of what um, what are the uh, free fastly developing educational tracks where Central Europeans or particularly your countries. So Ukraine, Bulgaria, and uh, Hungary may have a competitive advantage on any level of education. That's something that you see, if it's not yet developed, is on the best track to be developed and a very strong portfolio in education that is linked with the job market uh, in the future. So partly, you know, kind of your projection, but maybe some of the advice of which are the natural uh, great things to study because of various factors in particular countries. This question should be linking perhaps to how the job market and the companies and the business is developing, how the economy is developing in your countries, and which is also um, nicely linked with, with education tracks. Yeah, I can begin this time if uh, you don't mind. <laughs> yeah, okay. 
Sure. Because so many things come to my mind, uh, and then I give uh, to my uh, colleagues a bit time to reflect. Um, but um, so Hungary is actually one of the secret uh, success products that we have is the talent management programs. Uh, and the talent management program is covering from the age of seven to the age of 23, uh, the range of primary, secondary school and higher education. Um, even um, the first president of the European talent management organization, the first president was a Hungarian uh, professor. Um, so that's something that uh, that is very much uh, researched on the market. And I also see the Chinese buying in. Um, so that's something that there is a significant experience of at least two decades now being accumulated. Uh, and this actually means all extracurricular activity besides the regular studies. So this is probably something prone for the more Prussian systems um, where the uh, rigid education is needing something else uh, in parallel. Um, secondly, I also see a great, um, great deal of uh, possibilities in mathematics. Uh, I was surprised to discover myself that there is a foundation in the United States which is sending each semester uh, 30 mathematicians from the US to Hungary uh, on a special fund. Um, and, and they are just coming here for fun um, because they know that the professors are just so great that they enjoy without receiving credits, without receiving anything. I mean, there is a huge potential over there. And it is just unbelievable it's happening since communism. Uh, whatever iron curtain fall down, it is going on, mathematicians keep coming. Um, and finally, uh, of course, this uh, special system of colleges, which is the informal, again, non-credited version of community and learning community and life community attached to universities in a small format is something that we are now also exporting uh, in part um, to, um, to the countries around. And uh, I was in charge of some of the project in Slovenia, in Slovakia, uh, in Romania. Um, so that's something great, and I see that uh, um, the young generation is striving for communities uh, very much, and that's something that we found there in Ish. Okay, well, great to see this uh, basically an inspirational uh, also ideas from coming from Hungary. Uh, Pavlo, perhaps uh, I could ask you to. Yeah, it will be actually it will be easy for me to uh, follow on what um, Boton said because I am a product of uh, either way of Hungarian education because I spent my year my first year of MBA I spent uh, at uh, International Management Center Nemzet Kozi Management Kospont uh, which later became the part of uh, Central European University it became CEU Business School uh, and uh, it was great because um, uh, because Hungary was uh, it was what it was the beginning of 90s uh, so hungary was the sh the showcase and lab laboratory of change of uh, entrepreneurship we had a number of uh, hungarian professors uh, together with american canadian professors you know all of that even the student body we just had uh, 25 students um, uh, central eastern europe uh, so it was it was a great experience so in addition to what Bottom said i will just mention two more uh, areas uh, talking of Ukraine, uh, number one is uh, everything which is IT related, of course. Uh, it has a huge, uh, huge jump uh, at the moment in the country, uh, probably uh, reflecting the fact that given by its size and uh, still quite strong mathematics education, um, and, and, and not bad English education, uh, IT is, uh, is developing very nicely. So it's, uh, 
it uh, now became uh, one of the biggest um, uh, source of uh, of um, uh, hard currency into I mean, uh, one of our most successful exports. Uh, so obviously, the universities that uh, and both, by the way, uh, public and private, that um, uh, offer education in uh, in uh, Internet of Things, uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, cybernetics, informatics, you know, all of that uh, has uh, quite a big potential. But talking of uh, foreign students, um, I was surprised. I worked for three plus years in Malaysia uh, and, um, you know, just happened that I that uh, I had to be in the, in doctor's office. Not not very frequently, thanks God, but sometimes. And I could see, uh, you know, diplomas from uh, Ukrainian and Russian universities uh, in medicine, uh, you know, quite proudly shown on the walls uh, uh, of those Malaysian doctors. They would usually get a bachelor's degree in um, Ukrainian or Russian uh, schools. Uh, and, and then they would have a postgrad uh, in the U.S. or U.K., and come back and practice, and uh, and uh, you know that would be quite a uh, quite a stream of young people going into medical schools uh, in in Ukraine as well. So IT and medicine, just to add to what Botan said. Yeah, thanks. I think Ukraine is also big on on creativity and uh, fashion exports. As I understand, this is a, a growing uh, element of the export um, uh, basket. And I, I would I would imagine that there is also a lot of uh, design, perhaps in, in the process of making. So this is a bit of my advertising also of what can be interesting for uh, for you. linking education and and the job market in Ukraine. But how about uh, Bulgaria also? What's 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 the good news of of education and the prospects for for a job market in in Bulgaria? I was going to say I'm not sure whether I should feel intimidated as Bulgarian or uh, whether I'm just doing bad advertisement. But I actually think the as this is a pretty much service-based economy, I think that what's prospering here is really anything that's related to IT. So, but I wouldn't necessarily say that this is related to the good math education because I think there are quite a few out there that haven't gotten a formal training that are working in the IT sector, broadly speaking, IT developers, whatever um, you name it. And I think there are also a couple of the larger international companies that are based here, but also, I mean, let's face it, things like outsourcing call centers for which you don't necessarily need that type of a formal education. What counts here is if you're speaking languages. Um, and I think this is maybe one of the things that are still um, somewhat well-functioning. These are the so-called language schools where one would get out with either a English diploma or a German one for you know language proficiency that will get you um, to a job that is uh, that is that is decent. But I, uh, I mean, um, doctors, yeah, of course, uh, whenever you would travel to, I don't know, from Yemen to um, Libya, you would, uh, you remember the, the famous, uh, you know, case with the Bulgarian nurses, you would find both Bulgarian medicals working there, but also doctors being trained here. But I think this is, uh, old thing of the old days, by which I don't want to say that education has been great at that time, um, but certainly, uh, you know, there have, has been the stuff trained, um, trained over, over here. At the same time, I'm thinking, let's maybe have a look at the top universities in the world. Um, and by looking at that, I don't find um, any Bulgarian in the first, I think, top hundreds. 
which tells me something about the quality of the formal education. That's what I'm thinking. IT, especially self-trained, but also there are more and more academies, private academies that, um, you know, they basically train their employees um, in the skills that they need uh, of them rather than, um, uh, you know, hiring them with the skills that already uh, brought in. So I'm very, uh, what is it called? I'm very sober. <laughs> uh, I'm not making too much advertisement, uh, but that's the reality. There is also a question to you. Bulgaria holds second place in the EU by aging teacher staff. Nearly 50% is retiring in five years. Uh, what are your ideas to uh, attract, retain new teachers uh, besides raising salaries? Uh, is there is there this discussion even going on in, in Bulgaria? I, I I don't press you on giving us ideas here what to do about that, but you know maybe you can uh, report on the discussion in Bulgaria what to do about it. Yeah, that's an ongoing discussion for a while, and one of the things that the um, that politics has been doing quite successfully in the past years is indeed raising salaries to a point where a um, an assistant teacher right now earns more than an assistant professor at the universities, which is quite a um, you know there's quite a gap. Um, so the financial incentive is is there. I think um, there is the lack of a holistic approach to the, um, to, to the teaching profession in and of itself, which means starting by providing a proper support for the teachers. Teachers are quite often uh, left on their own to basically deal with a bunch of young people they don't know how to handle in a classroom. They certainly lack the entire, I mean, leave aside the knowledge and the type of knowledge. I'm not discussing this, but I'm talking about the whole skill set that that is either you call it soft skills um, that they're lacking in order to manage a classroom. Um, and I think this whole, in, 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 you know, the, the, the environmental approach to the school, not environmental in terms of climate change, but approaching a school as a community. You know that I'm in the, in the, in the business of civics. So um, a lot of the things become basically unnecessarily in, a, in an environment that just doesn't function as a community. So you can do a lot of things, you can put a lot of efforts, but if you don't have um, you know, proper leadership of the school, if you don't have the proper policies in there, if you don't have transparency, if you don't have a sense of community there and a whole bunch of other things, it's just very difficult to motivate people um, to go for, for, the, for, the, for the job of the teacher. And I think in general, uh, it lost it lost its image. It used to be back in the days that, you know, who are the, the three most important people in the village? It's the priest, it's the lawyer and it's the teacher. And this has uh, tremendously changed over the years. The teacher has uh, extremely lost um, in terms of image. So there's a lot to do, but it has to be approached from the side of the skill set, uh, which opens up a whole new conversation regarding the quality of the pedagogical training at university, which is probably the worst one because people who get to study, uh, you know, the teacher's profession are actually the ones with the uh, with the worst diplomas. It seems to me that um, uh, if, if we wanted to advise to um, young entrepreneurs, the graduate students who are predominantly interested in this forum and uh, they are around New Europe 100 forum, uh, the, the advice would be go to Bulgaria and enroll in the, in the teacher's program, right? Because your, the prospects of your salaries and your job prospects are, uh, um, but my final uh, question, the summary question to all of you, perhaps, you know, one minute, uh, for, for, for each. 
to conclude our uh, discussion would be again relating to the very present day uh, situation COVID-19, the pandemic lockdowns and various uh, forms of limitation of, of the traditional education. Uh, what would be your advice uh, considering the audience, graduate students from Central Europe, young entrepreneurs, startups, uh, how to make the best of educational opportunities that are there for them? Bottom, you start. Thank you, Moshe. COVID-19 is giving us the rare opportunity to take some time for ourselves. Uh, and even for university students, that's even more important. Uh, they are rushed into competition. Uh, competition for the grades, competition for the jobs, competition for the uh, fellowships and scholarships. Um, and, and they, I find, um, are not even incentivized to spend time on reflection and to take time for reflection. Um, so COVID-19 is also a way to just walk out into the forest uh, and take half day alone with yourself. Um, and, and just to reflect, are you on the right place? This is the university you want to do. Uh, honestly, then later, if it is a massive online class or is it uh, a, a different year in Rwanda uh, helping school children or, or finally uh, volunteering for teaching free um, in, a, in another organization, that's not the point. The point is that uh, we are not offering enough space for discernment. Uh, for our young people, and we don't even teach them to discern properly. So I would take COVID-19 as an excellent opportunity for this. Okay, thank you. Uh, so self, self-reflection as a part of your uh, inner growth uh, ahead of time. Yeah. Well, I'll take that as a notice. Yes, uh, uh, Luisa? As I was listening to Botan, I was thinking, since this is a, um, obviously, you know, it's called New Europe 100 Forum. It's for creme le creme from Central and Eastern Europe. I cannot stop thinking about everyone else because this is also in the gist of the work that I'm doing. I, in our organization, we never work in the urban centers. We go there where others don't go. And we do civics there. Um, and there's a reason for that. I think... Um, even those that are enrolled now in universities and cannot physically do lectures, um, they don't necessarily, if they had the chance, wouldn't necessarily go to teach in Rwanda, you know, both on taking on your examples. But they actually have to do some small jobs with which they not only support themselves, but also support their families sometimes. So I would actually, the, the piece of advice that I would give them is to really don't panic. <laughs> But to think about what is it that helps them build resilience and maybe looking to all the examples in the family's history and in the people around them and the previous generations who had to go through tough transition in the 90s in the region. And what are the stories that they can learn from them? Because there are so many powerful stories of, you know, so many broken families and so many jobless people um, after the, well, the economies collapsed in the region that I think they could take some some stories from there, but also some ideas of how to build resilience and how to learn to be flexible with the uncertainty of the current situation, but also of the future one. Okay. If we're treating COVID as creative destruction, what, what do we create out of it and how should we prepare in terms of education? COVID is uh, ultimate, ultimate creative destruction. Hope we go through that once in our lifetime. Uh, but uh, actually, well, again, experts say that, you know, don't pray for that. But anyway, uh, Wojtek and colleagues, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to start and to finish. And I would connect these two things, actually. 
uh, because at the beginning I said that uh, we all uh, will be expecting to change our positions and jobs and uh, and careers and vocations during the lifetime is much more than our parents or grandparents did. And therefore, uh, I just I would like to quote uh, Tom Friedman from New York Times because he put it beautifully. He said, curiosity and passion. That's what we need. I mean, that's, but th- that would be my sermon. Curiosity and passion to be lifelong learners who feel ownership over their education. You own it. Because again, in Ukraine, I always have this discussion. You know, my professor is not so good. My university is not so good. My university is boring. I said, what are you talking about? This is your life. This is your education. And then again, to conclude with Friedman, he says, obviously, everyone still needs strong fundamentals in reading and writing and math. But in a world where you will change jobs and professions several times, the self-motivation to be a lifelong learner will be a paramount. And that's what I would like to recommend to all of us and to people who are listening to us. Thank you. Thank you very much, 100 Forum. We brought it online and maybe thanks that it is online. It's so it's so easy to connect and bring everyone uh, from the New Europe 100 network and, and people interested in, in connecting the young and, and talented stories with, with, with the big success. Uh, like you can, you can have this career path throughout Central Europe um, and achieve a lot. Um, together, I think uh, I, I, this is the, the right moment to say big thanks to, to all of you for sharing your thoughts and reflections. Thank you for listening to this special edition of the Visegrad Insight podcast on the new Europe 100 Forum, co-funded by the International Visegrad Fund.